Sing for Science is made possible in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was recorded backstage at the Omegang Brewery in Cooperstown, New York, before Wilco's concert there on August 21st, 2022. Don't forget to check out our other episodes, and please enjoy the show. So we take this virtual reality for the real thing, and then because we need to simulate as much of the world as possible just to be able to survive and to predict where things are going, we are part of the world, so we need to simulate ourselves, and that's where the snake bites its tail, and you start trying to think through it, and you get into this infinite regress. How can I simulate something that simulates something which simulates something, and so on? And this vicious loop, this is the focus of, of this mystery, what people perceive as the mystery of consciousness. Human's a machine It's deadly and dull It's never been still and its will Has never been free Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with Jeff Tweedy, lead singer and founder of the hugely influential band Wilco. Their 2004 song, Less Than You Think, is a two-part piece that references theories of mind and atheism. The second half of the song is 12 minutes of electronic drones and noise composed to represent the migraines Jeff had been suffering from for most of his life at that point. Also joining us is Cornell University computational psychologist, Dr. Shimon Edelman. Computational psychology seeks to explain all of cognition using the conceptual and mathematical tools of information processing. Dr. Edelman's forthcoming book, The Consciousness Revolutions, makes the case that human consciousness is the product of a virtual reality simulation created by our brains. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is Less Than You Think, Demystifying the Hard Problem of Consciousness with Computational Psychology. Hello, Jeff and Shimon. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah. So, Jeff, I was hoping we could start uh, just by going over the opening lyrics to Less Than You Think. Sure. Remind me. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Your mind's a machine. It's deadly and dull. It's never been still, and its will has never been free. So... (laughs) It's not every day that you hear a, a track from a, a Grammy-winning album that makes claims as bold as those about theories of mind. <laughs> so, I mean, what, what do you remember about coming up with those lines? Um, I think that a lot of times, just because I sing something doesn't mean that I can uh, believe it intellectually or emotionally. Uh, I don't really strive to sing things that I think are true. I strive to sing things that um, create a certain sensation inside of me that feels like it's the right thing to sing. Um, Sometimes that's mostly based on discomfort. (laughs) If I'm singing something that makes me a little bit uncomfortable, I feel like it's, it has some value in a way to share those thoughts. Yeah. I don't not believe those lyrics, (laughs) but I also don't know that I do understand those lyrics and I don't feel like I'm supposed to necessarily understand all of my lyrics either you know 
So like the boldness of the claim actually is what might cause the discomfort? The boldness of the claim, the I'm sure that you've encountered this quite a bit. It's a concept that not many people feel very at ease with, I don't think. It's worth asking you to talk a bit about the words to the chorus as they're staggeringly beautiful. Um, I'll refresh your memory on those two. As your spine starts to shine, you shiver at your soul. A fist so clear in climbing punches a hole in the sky. So you can see for yourself, if you don't believe me, there's so much less to this than you think. <laughs> so it seems to me that those are kind of making the case for an, an atheistic worldview. Or not. I think it's a reaction to the, the first lyrics. I think that I wrote the emotional response to the first lyrics is the chorus. And it's, it's meant to um, provide some sense of catharsis in the face of, of a cold estimation of the existence, mm -hmm. you know. And it doesn't necessarily need to be based on religion. Music is a religion in some way, or like spiritual for a lot of people, and myself included. There's a spiritual nature to the ability for music to express things that are difficult to express with words. And so that's what I feel like those lyrics are saying is like, we could stop thinking about this and trying to understand the unknowable and just share our ability to make something beautiful mm -hmm. and and communicate beauty. Yeah. Your book, which I also want to talk about, emphasizes the importance of doing as much. But while we're still on the topic of spirituality, you, you said something on Mark Marin that I found really arresting. You said you were talking about your conversion to Judaism when your mm -hmm. son was doing his bar mitzvah. And um, correct me if I've if I've got this wrong, but the rabbi said a belief in God is not required, but instead only the search for God. Or even just the search for not necessarily God, but for the sacred. How do you distinguish between all three? I don't. I don't know that I do. I think that I, I, I could describe it as inspiration. I could describe mm -hmm. it as connection. It's just an intentional effort on my part to exist in the presence of something that I find meaningful. Even when the meaning is very, very hard to explain, there's a, just a, a sense that it's not, <laughs> it's not worthless. I think that that's, that's a human aspiration is to, you know, just keep reminding yourself of uh, a, a reason to go on. We could describe it as simple as that, you know, finding some sense of purpose or some sense that you should continue. Yeah. From what I from what I gather from reading your book, how to write one song, your most immediate access to that is in songwriting, which you do quite diligently. Not necessarily. I mean, yeah, songwriting for myself is an extremely valuable coping mechanism, consolation. I feel very grateful that I found something I love to do and I'm able to disappear into it. But it's also feeding myself other people's inspiration, other people's work, other people's writing, music, film, dance, baseball, you know, just, I like, I wouldn't want to use the word consume, but I guess there's no other word really for it. Like I try and consume things that I know result in me feeling compelled to answer the challenge that um, I should make something, that, that there is a bar that I can aim at and 
that's been really sustaining for me in my life. Yeah. Like not knowing I'm, if I'm able to get there, but feeling incremental growth, you know, mm-hmm. through it. I'm starting to notice some improvement on yeah. some things after all these years. You know? Yeah. And I, I would like to offer a little plug for your book. I highly recommend it to anyone listening, whether you play music or not, though it's not a self-help book as such. It does make the case that doing something creative is an important part of a balanced life. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like an advocate for creativity, for sure. I think that there's a there's a real benefit to intentionally spending time with your imagination Mm. as a practice. Uh, whether it results in songs or poems or anything like that, I don't think that that's necessarily the point. I think the point is that a lot of people have convinced themselves that they're not creative and they do things that kind of emulate the state of creativity. Like, in in other words, I think that a lot of people do things that are like a time suck where they disappear and Mm -hmm. the, the... you know, a rigid feeling of time goes away. And, and that's, that's all really great. I guess it's probably beneficial for everybody, mm-hmm. but I think it's more, uh, human and, and helpful, uh, to intentionally spend time with your, with your imagination and, rem- and remind yourself you have an imagination. I, and I do believe everybody has an imagination. It'd be m- almost impossible to get home if you didn't have the ability to improvise. <laughs> totally. And I, I see kind of a through line. I mean, in, in spite of what you'd said earlier about not necessarily having to believe the lyrics that you write in, I feel like it's, it's the, um, conceit of both the book from what you say in the intro and what I interpret from the lyrics that it's almost like you are you're committed to relieving the listener and the reader of what are maybe misconceptions about these things that people typically find out of reach be it songwriting or these ideas about spirituality or the mind these kind of out of reach I think there's concepts. a lot of insecure I'm sorry to, yeah. to talk over you I think there's a lot of insecurity in the people that do what I do and people mm-hmm. that create and there's a certain amount of gatekeeping that goes on and and how people talk about this thing that they do um I don't think it's intentional but I think a lot of people like exalt themselves as being a conduit for the universe or things like that I feel are I don't know just a little bit self-aggrandizing sure. you know and I, I the only thing I can chalk it up to is that there's a certain amount of fear that if everybody does it, I'm not going to be mm. so special or something like that, or I'm going to give away my secrets. I got asked that question about this book quite a few times. Do you feel like you gave away your secrets? Mm. And I'm like, no, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because I feel like if I use this process or these processes repeatedly and they don't result in the same song. Yeah. So why would it? Why would I think that somebody else is going to use them and write? Mm one of my songs and if they write the greatest song that's ever been written don't i benefit from that right no 100 percent. and if if you don't mind could you tell our listeners a little bit about those processes some of the exercises i found really helpful or you you talk a little bit about free association writing right before and after sleep and Mm -hmm. um also the the thing that i kind of really glommed onto was the writing gibberish lyrics and you said that our brains will seek out a pattern and then you can actually make lyrics from those yeah that's a good that's a good um process to explain you know i think that 
I've listened to so much music and the vocabulary I have for for songwriting is is such that I can sit down and make up a chord progression and then my mind wants to hear language even though I don't have language yet it, it kind of knows where it wants the melody to be or or uh maybe I have to work on getting a melody together but it kind of knows what it wants to sound like yeah and so I've over time liberated myself to just sing what that sounds like into a recorder uh, some kind of you know, like my phone or in the studio and it's not language I can play these tracks for people and they will be convinced that there's language there that, that I have words right. finished sometimes yeah it's it's pretty if you mix it pretty low it's yeah. pretty it's pretty convincing um didn't you say to Mark Marin that some songs that don't there, have they don't have finished lyrics there the are some songs that are in out in the world that don't have yeah. finished <laughs> lyrics that have yeah. but people but people don't want to believe that so yeah. I I just wanted to do it as an experiment to see if anybody ever noticed yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um and I'm sure that they've come up with some lyrics sure. for those just the same way I do but that's what I do after I have this version of a song I'll listen to it repeatedly and just transcribe what I think I'm hearing. And then over time, it starts to make more and more sense. And then I'll just put the song away and I'll just look at the words. And almost inevitably, I discover something that I would never have allowed myself to say, but isn't gibberish. It isn't meaningless. It's... um. A lot of times it feels important, you know, um, but it's something I would never get to if I sat down and said, well, I'm going to write a song about drug addiction <laughs> and here's here's how it goes. And these are the main points I want to get across. Yeah. Um, music doesn't really need to work like that because the melody is is contributing so much meaning as well. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of these exercises that you promote in the book are kind of designed to override that self-editing mm -hmm. impulse, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's so important. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't try to talk about the, the song's uh, most standout feature, which is the 12 minutes of noise <laughs> at, at the end. And just so our listeners know, you included that to represent, at that point, uh, you were experiencing very well-documented migraines, because I've seen the, mm -hmm. the Wilco documentary. Could you tell us how you approach putting that together, that section? Well, first of all, I still have migraines oh. periodically, but not as bad as, or not as frequently as I did then. I don't know why I felt compelled to make that clear, but. No, it's important. <laughs> I get, in my mind, it's in the past. Yeah, it's like yeah. you're in recovery, yeah. migraines went with it. No, no, it's, it's, it's just been a constant in my life. But I don't feel like that piece of music sounds like a migraine. Okay. I feel like, the experience of it is analogous to a migraine to, yeah. to some degree and that it it goes away very imperceptibly imperceptibly perceptively right i'm going to say imperceptibly that's okay. my guess oh my god i'm sitting across from a scientist yeah, and no. i can't <laughs> can't speak but anyway it just fades away and leaves a little bit of an aura kind of like staring at a bright light and closing your eyes. You know, when a migraine goes away, there's a certain euphoria, but there's also a little ghost of it that continues to exist. And the way that it's constructed is that everybody in the band set up 
a instrument that would play itself either by you know a guitar that would continue to feed back against an amplifier would be the simplest one mm -hmm. some of them have drink stirs taped to the strings so that they are spinning around and like um i think there was a box fan blowing on a microphone yeah. turned up really loud lots of modern electronic instruments will play themselves so you just set them all off and then we just recorded it for for a long like a whole reel of tape yeah. the original version of it is that part is a half an hour long okay <laughs> and the mix is jim o'rourke's you know really expert almost cinematic ability to kind of extract a narrative and a shape out of all of these sounds but it was it was to relate first and foremost to the idea of no free will you know like here we're making a record but none of us are playing anything we're not actually in control of any of this and then over time it was included on the record because i did feel like there was such a bad period for migraines that it had this resonance for me that um felt analogous yeah in preparation for today and I should note the, the reason why I'd asked both of you to join here is because mm -hmm. of Ezra Klein interview. I heard you talking about your fascination with consciousness or things that are ineffable that you can't necessarily understand. But in preparing for today, I was listening to a lecture on consciousness and they were talking about the brain's predictive capabilities in terms of not just how we could see a face in a passing cloud, but also we could hear like a uh, familiar melody and noise. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I can't listen. I listen to all kinds of things all the time, my yeah. whole life. And especially when I'm recording or making songs up, I tend to not listen to song based music. Yeah, I, I tend to listen to recordings of nature or, mm. or, or machinery or things like, I love listening to just sounds because yeah. the more rich the harmonic I don't know noisiness is yeah the more my brain does do that it, it does it, it does pick out a melody or it starts to hear a pattern that I, I i mean i almost always get more inspired to play the guitar after i listen to something like that honestly it's just always been records are records to me and mm -hmm. one of the things that i've gravitated towards in my life is buying all kinds of records that aren't uh, made by pop artists or, or or songwriters or things like that you know, one of the things that happened with that song, by the way, and I don't know if I've told this story before, but my wife gave that CD with less than you think on it to a friend of hers who's not particularly adventurous in her music listening. Mm -hmm. And when that song came on, she must have had it kind of on the stereo, not completely loud or anything. She drove straight to a garage and told a mechanic that her car was making a weird sound. <laughs> <laughs> and he got in and turned her stereo off. Yeah. <laughs> is, is that it? Yeah. <laughs> well, without further ado, let's get some insight from Dr. Edelman. And perhaps a good way to start is if you could give us some working definitions of what consciousness is, uh, according to the popular ideas. It's a multi-tiered thing. Um, we all have an idea of what it is because we are conscious. For as long as we are conscious, we have an idea. But people rarely pause to consider uh, selfless varieties of consciousness. For instance, uh, the type uh, in which some animal doesn't have to be a biological system, but so far, typically, we have animals doing that, like a single-cell animal is 
aware of its environment and uh, responds to the environment and sometimes takes initiative. So th those are the basics of selfless consciousness. And then on top of that, animals that can afford it build um, more complicated varieties and then become self-aware. Mm -hmm. And the epitome of that is we start digging into our self-perception and uh, reflect back, consciousness reflects back on itself. And that's what commonly goes by the name of consciousness. But I always try to make the point of, of bringing into the picture all sentient creatures, as the expression goes, because mm -hmm. sentience is this basic phenomenal awareness, what's called the phenomenal, the basic phenomenal consciousness. Okay. The definition that I hear most frequently, consciousness is what it's like to be something. Well, that's Thomas Nagel's um, litmus test for consciousness. Presumably, there is nothing that it's like to be a rock, mm -hmm. but there is something it is like to be a sentient being because of the sentience, the sensing of the environment. And there's helpful rules of thumb go. This is a very useful one, of course, very widely known one, mm -hmm. but it doesn't explain what it is. It just tells you if that's present, there you have it. That thing is conscious. Yeah. And we should also include what Chalmers calls the hard problem of consciousness, which I imagine you argue is not a hard problem at all. Yeah, well, Chalmers is a, an old fashioned dualist or defeatist, if you wish. Uh, <laughs> I will probably get into hot water for this. <laughs> but from first principles, he thinks he, he can plausibly deny the possibility of ever reducing consciousness to any kind of physical process. And he calls that reduction the hard problem which, you know, I think in, remember Richard Bach used to write kind of self-help books and, and uh, mysteries about consciousness a long time ago. Uh, he has a phrase, uh, argue for your limitations and surely enough, they're yours. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't find the problem of explaining consciousness particularly hard or harder than other deep problems in science. Mm -hmm. and by the way, very interestingly, Chalmers is now into exploring what he calls the meta hard problem of consciousness. Why is it that people, most people have the intuition that mm -hmm. the problem of consciousness is hard? So everyone is having a lot of fun. He's a great guy. Mm -hmm. When I first got to Cornell, he was the second person I invited for the colloquium I ran. I mm. really appreciate his work. I don't think the problem of consciousness is all that hard. Yeah. So what is your take on what consciousness is? So the most basic kind, the, the one I mentioned before that we share with bacteria, it all boils down to, to discernment, as in this, not that. I feel now this, I see this as opposed to that. And discernment has to be uh, built into the system, the animal itself. It cannot be dictated from the outside. It's not enough to look at what the animal does and say, it seems to me it's conscious because, of course, it has to be up to the animal itself. Mm. So there is a way in mathematics pretty standard mathematical approach of describing and studying systems that have this intrinsic capacity for discernment. Essentially, physical systems that can go this way or that way. If I roll a billiard ball down this table, it can go to the left of the glass of water or to the right. That's discernment. You can say, wow, where's consciousness in that? Well, it's kind of a one-time event, but if there is something in the system that brings the ball back to the starting place, and then sometimes the ball goes to the left of the glass because the wind blows this way and sometimes to the right. The ball going down the path discerns the state of the wind, which is outside the system. So there you have basic consciousness. 
I would probably get into hot water for this yeah. as well. Well, I saw a TED talk that you gave and you described the brain as a virtual reality engine, mm -hmm. which I find provocative. But tell us a little bit more about that. Well, the first thing we have to realize, and luckily, I guess, for our mental well-being, we don't most of the time about the brain is that it, it sits in this very, very dark place inside the skull, perpetual total darkness. And how do you reconcile that with all the light? I mean, look, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in, right? So the crack in everything is the processes that get the information from the outside to the inside. And what happens on the inside is a virtual reality is being built, which reflects just enough of what's going on outside as needed for the system to just maintain and propagate itself. Mm -hmm. So it's virtual reality, but on the inside it feels real because if we ever had to question that our self-esteem, not just self-esteem, but just the, the comportment that we can maintain in, we would crumble. Mm -hmm. I guess that that's sometimes what you have when you are on a very serious trip. I've never been, but that's what I hear. Mm. Reality crumbles for you. You don't just intellectually realize this is all a setup, but you feel it. Yeah. That would be very bad. It's not a normal state in which a system can persist for a long time. But if we, if the three of us can say this, this table is black, mm. where is a reality that's virtual about that? I mean, if, if, it's, if we're dealing with a shared reality, that's where it kind of breaks down for me. I guess I have a hard time getting my head around it. Well, Assuming that we all share in the world that's out there, it's only a question of coordination. An animal that would be out of kilter, not in sync with the proper ways of perceiving the world, would just not do very well. And so we agree on the table being here and having the color that it has because we've been schooled by evolution, collectively mm -hmm. speaking, as a species, to be pretty good at coordinating things with the world and with other people from our species. Okay. Uh, the part I get hung up on is why the brain is like the is as isolated in your description. Isn't it just part of a system that uses our skin, uses all these other cells in our body? Yeah, definitely. That that's a great observation. I was going along with with Matt's phrasing, which singled out the brain, mm -hmm. but there's a great movement out there in my corner of the sciences that promotes this idea of embodiment. Brains are embodied. Bodies are an essential part of the computations that mm -hmm. the brain uh, carries out. So absolutely. And, mm -hmm. and uh, our ownership of our body is a central part of our sense mm -hmm. of the self and also the agency, the fact that we can make our bodies do what we want them to do. And that actually reflects on them as being part of us. That's for me the proof that this is part of me is I, I can tell it what to do. I can tell my fingers to do this or that. Mm -hmm. So great observation, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, let me, let me ask you to tell us a little bit about computational psychology. It just seems like such an, uh, a menacing sounding discipline because <laughs> I know you have a background in computer science. So I, I mean, I want to know just kind of a basic definition and Specifically, is this a metaphor or is it like, is there something more direct happening in your opinion? It's as far removed from being a metaphor, as close to being a literal thing as you can get uh, for simple reasons of physics, which I'll get to, but I want first to flag a connection. I think it's a great connection to the song, Jeff's song that we discussed earlier, less than you think. My, the first reaction I get in class 
is that all there is to it? Just some computation. Mm -hmm. That's pretty demeaning. Mm -hmm. That's threatening. I feel threatened. Mm -hmm. I used to get reactions like, what prevents me from taking a machine gun and just killing everyone? And I would say, why is that the first idea that comes to your mind? <laughs> if you're like, okay, so you're a bunch of computations. As to why we are a bunch of computations, like everything is, you know, if I take this very nice t-shirt rolled up conveniently and I let go of it, it falls. How, how does it know how fast to go and when to stop? It computes its trajectory. So the world, the universe computes its next state from microsecond to microsecond. Mm -hmm. And brains do that as well, except the brains do some extra things, which is precisely what I mentioned earlier, which is representing what's outside of them. So the shirt, I can say this represents a, a maybe a piece of chalk that I would throw and it does the same trajectory. But that's my interpretation. Intrinsically, this doesn't represent anything. Brains do. So they compute because all of the universe computes itself, its next state but they compute things which are useful for them mm -hmm. to keep maintaining themselves. So I hope this makes some sense. Can you talk more about the computing part? What's happening? So um, uh, I'm, uh, I'm looking right now at you guys through two eyes, but I don't see double. How mm -hmm. come? Uh, not only I don't see double, what I see is actually neither of the two pictures, the two images, you know, close one eye, close the other. Mm -hmm. The world seems to move a bit. So what I see is neither this nor that. I see what's computed by actually highly non-trivial series of operations that merges, melds the information from the two eyes to compose one whole. So the first thing a sighted person gets when they open their eyes in the morning is a proof that their brains compute something which actually would not exist. This picture mm. would be nowhere if it were not computed by the brain. And I can go on every sense, everything. And in fact, uh, the uh, fun challenge, the fun part of teaching this course on computational psychology is me offering my students a standing challenge, come up with anything, any aspect at all that you, you care to bring up about brain slash mind. And I'll, I'll offer, at least I'll sketch a computational account of it. Maybe not give a full account, but tell you how to go about figuring out what computations go into it standing challenge on my part you're welcome to participate yeah <laughs> how do you represent that mathematically like take the vision example you can figure out what form the representations of the images that come from each eye to the brain where they meet take you can write equations that describe how those images are processed how the merging happens there are certain constraints on, on the merging which uh, come out as predictions you can go back then to actual living visual systems and, and see if the predictions are, are sustained. And that's how you get proof that this is a good theory that, that fits the actual state of affairs. And so for this so-called stereopsis, the vision with two eyes, this has been very well explored, very well understood. There are some other examples I can give that have to do with the, the sense of hearing, the sense of smell, touch, all of the senses, and then one can go on to describe thinking in those terms, language, everything. This is standing bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just strikes me as being in almost incomprehensible that, that you could, uh, just the sheer volume of computation that would be necessary was where I, my mind boggles, you know. 
because if we're talking on a molecular level, not just the rough concept of seeing, mm. but what all of the biological processes that are involved mm. in any individual microsecond yeah. of, of sight. Um, and yours isn't the same as mine. We have different prescriptions for our classes. <laughs> we have different biology. Um, we agreed upon. Yeah. We agree upon what we're seeing to some degree. Uh-huh. But I, I, I don't. What I don't know if I'm explaining myself. But I just. It just seems like the amount of computational. Yeah. Like if it was a computer. Yeah. The power you would need to make yeah. that kind of computation. Well, would that, be that, let me try to see if. if uh, if if I can if I can tell where this comes from, it, this this is a very very uh, credible intuition. I think mm. I, I I would share it, except uh, when I think where it comes from, I think it comes from uh, the idea of there being you know a little man, a homunculus, a little creature inside doing all the computing. Mm-hmm. So for most of the stuff that we need for staying alive, the, our tissues, mm. literally the body, which you you brought up earlier. Mm. Uh, they just do that job. No, I don't. So, I'm not talking about the little man inside doing that computation. I'm talking about us yeah. trying to recreate. You said you could recreate oh, it like with. like in the with, study of consciousness? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you said oh, you could yeah. mimic it with like uh, mathematical equations. Yeah. Well, you know, with in the case of vision, for instance, um, yeah, there are lots of pixels in mm-hmm. the images that come in from the eyes but the computations for most of them are the same so it's like one computation mm-hmm. being run for all the pixels so you know not a big deal right. but you actually are you made the point which is even more fascinating than I, I misunderstood you just now but I think now I'm understanding you correct mm-hmm. me if, if I'm wrong uh, how can we grasp a theory of consciousness itself which which goes beyond those you know mundane things of merging the two the two images from the two eyes well i think that's possible because the core of consciousness is very low bandwidth in mm-hmm. fact that's the source of the intuition that we have about consciousness and so that low bandwidth thing mm-hmm. our self-consciousness kicks in when the automatic processes cannot cope when particular attention is needed so consciousness as we mm-hmm. experience it is all about control in mm-hmm. fact uh, there is a great uh, uh, simile that, that, that is due to, to Thomas Metzinger, one of my favorite philosophers of consciousness, what he calls the total flight simulators. I mentioned earlier that we simulate, the brain simulates everything that's outside and also itself doing the simulation. So mm-hmm. if, if you apply this insight, this is the single greatest insight in the understanding of consciousness as we experience it. You apply it to flight simulator, this flight simulator situation. A normal flight simulator simulates the terrain and the plane, like the dynamics mm-hmm. of the plane. You play with the stick, the plane does things. A total flight simulator simulates the pilot as well. There's no pilot except what's simulated by this system. Mm-hmm. When you don't need it, you let it go. You go to sleep, you're not conscious. That's not the same as deep anesthesia, which completely disrupts the dynamics. But even just going to sleep, means letting go of the, of the pilot right and so that and that control process when it's not needed it's just dissolved and then it comes it reconstitutes itself when it's needed yeah i think that that's where i always get hung up on con on uh theories of consciousness as i i i just i get that the the base consciousness that we're talking about is uh maybe easier to 
make equations or, or explain in some way. What, but I'm always, whenever I think of consciousness, I guess I'm always thinking about just this crazy experience of being me. Yeah. That isn't, I don't, I think it's unique in all of history to be it me. Absolutely is. And, and that is what I incorporate into my sense of consciousness. So it's really hard for me to look at it in, in so a, that's, a basic level. So that's the other side, uh, which I really did want to bring up in response to those lyrics, because mm -hmm. the lyrics sound very depressing. <laughs> if you take them at face value, at least to me, mm -hmm. you know, this is all there is. Mm -hmm. um, so let me offer another phrase from Thomas Metzinger, what he calls the the splendor and the misery of self-models. So, mm. oh yeah, I'm just a bunch of computations, but look look what I'm capable of, mm -hmm. look what you're capable mm -hmm. of. Mm. Uh, this is mind-boggling in a good way. Uh, on the one hand, you have this realization, oh, this is all there is, but, but then look, and you know, there's this line in, in Shakespeare, you know, which I cannot quote from memory, what a wonderful creature is man, so low, so base in, in his instincts, so um, lofty, something mm -hmm. like to mm -hmm. that effect, you know. I think there are those, those well, are the two sides of it. And this mm -hmm. is, you know, this is what keeps speaking for myself. Mm -hmm. It's what keeps me going. Yes, you know, it's hard to be me. I mean, it, probably it's hard to be anyone for anyone. Mm -hmm. It's hard to be me. Uh, and uh, this is all there is to me. But on the other hand, look, I, I can, you know, I can go out and look at the sky. Mm -hmm. I can go into the desert. Mm -hmm. I can see the lizards mm -hmm. and the cactuses. I can see the sun and the stars at night. Wow, I mean. Well, I think <laughs> in defense of those lyrics and the mm. reaction to the you don't idea have to that defend them. No, no, <laughs> and the idea that I don't find them depressing at all. I feel, I feel like they're actually kind of trying to express uh -huh. what your what what your rebuttal to them is is that the the chorus is um you know, I have a punch a hole punch in the hole sky, in the right? Sky. Yeah, you know, like I have this ability to <laughs> I have this ability to stop needing to know. And the, if I stop needing to know, I am free of of some of these ideas that can be oppressive and marvel at the not knowing, which is to me the ideal state. <laughs> you know, like when we mm -hmm. talk about like I always get this the yeah. same sort of reaction to people talking about pseudoscience or, or you know, like just the, the nature itself is insane. <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, like science itself, what well, the reality that we deal with, we walk around in is so hard to believe. I don't know why we need to make up certain things. Yeah, it's and, miraculous in and of yeah. itself. Yeah, one of my favorite cartoons is a, a line drawing of um, a farm scene like you see here in upstate New York, you know, some meadow and mm -hmm. some trees and a bunny eating a carrot. Mm -hmm. And that's how a common person sees the world. And then the same panel, how the scientists see the world, the same, but overlaid with a bunch of equations, otherwise mm -hmm. exactly the same <laughs> with some extras, you know, yeah. even more exciting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm going to put myself out on a limb. I just, I, I find a mechanistic explanation of consciousness and mind uh, to be deeply unsatisfying. And I base that on, uh, I'm not threatened by it, but I feel as though like my sense of being is that all matter is connected some way and that science has not figured out how to measure yet. And if that's true, if I'm right, why is my experience of being me have to take place just between my ears? 
you know, or this body? Why can't my experience of me be out here, you know, five feet between us or something? Is this a question to me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in, in Hindu mythology, there's this concept which was also borrowed by the Buddhists, the Indra's net, this mm. network of jewels which extends forever and each of them reflects everything else. So each one reflects all the others, which is to say everything is connected, which is what, what you just said. You mm -hmm. know, so the universe is causally connected. In fact, if there were part of the universe, the universe that were not causally connected, the rest of it, it would not be part of the universe. So mm -hmm. everything is connected. Mm -hmm. On that, there are some physical limitations, like the speed of light. You know, there's nothing outside your light cone that would have to travel faster than the speed of light to get to you that can affect you. Right? Let's just say that one more time. That's Einstein. You know, the special theory of relativity says yeah. if there's a piece of information out there that would not get to you in your lifetime because it's too far, yeah. it will not affect you. So that kind of narrows down what can be called causal domains, mm -hmm. domains within which things affect each other. Mm -hmm. So we you are a particular causal domain because of the embodiment of your memory, which happens to be mostly between your ears, but part of it, I see it a solid disc on, you know, on, mm -hmm. on the table between us. So part of it, you outsource, but mm -hmm. most of it is inside your head, part of your body. And uh, that doesn't take it out of this huge web of cause and effect that mm -hmm. constitutes the universe. It just happens to be a part of it. In fact, this is one way in which people used to say to express the nature of consciousness, the universe looking back on itself. And there's nothing mysterious. I mean, at least I don't see anything mysterious about it because um, uh, that actually also connects the question of, of the freedom of will, the amount of freedom that we have, mm -hmm. of course, is limited by the fact that we are part of this huge web of cause and effect. I mean, again, if you take yourself out of it, mm -hmm. you, you cease to be part of the universe. And we don't know what that even means. But that doesn't diminish your freedom because you are this causal nexus. You are the bottleneck mm -hmm. where causal connections between your past and your future happen to be embodied. So yes, what you do, like for instance, your presence here is to a large part due to your personal history, right? And, and to Jeff's personal history. And I have a hand in this now because I'm present here too. So I'm, I, I'm I'm infringing on your freedom of the will. But that's okay, because again, if you take yourself out of that equation, you're not part of the universe. If you want to, to be, to continue being part of the universe, you have to accept the fact that the universe interacts with you, mm -hmm. or the rest of the universe interacts with a part of it which you perceive as being yourself. So that uh, concept I also borrowed from a great philosopher of the mind, Daniel Dennett. Mm -hmm. He calls it... Um, he has a book, I think, subtitled, uh, oh, the title is Elbow Room. The subtitle is Varieties of Free Will Worth Wanting. Mm -hmm. So what you don't want is randomness. That's not freedom. Mm -hmm. Like if there's a throw of dice for everything you do, it's not up to you. It's up to the dice. And yet it's not up to factors that are entirely outside the physical confines of you. So you, if you just understand properly what it means to be a self, to be a self is to be a bundle of computations that are influenced by events that are in that bundle's past. I met Daniel Dennett one time, mm -hmm. and I told him I really loved his book, Explaining Consciousness. Oh, that Consciousness Explained. Consciousness that was, Explained, yeah. yeah. 
yeah, yeah. That was and he <laughs> dismissed me pretty, pretty, pretty <laughs> really, pretty, yeah, that uh, pretty mercilessly. <laughs> Did he say anything? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I correspond with him occasionally, yeah. and uh, I I think he's great. I mm-hmm. think he's. Well, he's pretty old. So it's yeah. pretty yeah. cantankerous. Yeah, that's <laughs> what, that was the impression I got. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to get that old so I can speak my mind yeah. as well. <laughs> I should be, and I am forever grateful to Dennett for having written, actually co-edited a book that basically brought me, dragged me into the field I am, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm enjoying the hell out of it. So mm-hmm. I'm really grateful to him. I want to say, first of all, what you just said is extremely philosophical, and as a result, for me, abstract and quite frankly, feels like a little bit above my pay grade. So I just feel like I don't know if I'll ever really be able to grasp it entirely. But my, I, it makes me wonder, like, how did you end up in the f- Department of Psychology and not philosophy? Well, my first degree is in electrical engineering. And then I, I got a, a master's and PhD in computer science. And then I read this book, Doug Hofstetter's Gödel Escher Bach. Oh, yeah. The book that's called the book that launched a thousand careers, you know, like Helen of Troy's face launched a thousand ships. So I got completely, my my plans got completely subverted by that book. I decided I want to work on AI and the brain. And uh, Matt, about your pay grade? Absolutely not. So I'm too conscious of the time limit that we have. But if you only just give me an opportunity to have a few beers with you, believe (laughs) me, we emerge on the other side. Okay. Okay. And then I think you'll feel I have my head my head around it a little bit better. I guess it's inaccessible to me because I can't I don't drink. Well, yeah, me neither. <laughs> um, you know, you'd mentioned anesthesia, and I know this comes up a lot when people are talking about consciousness. And I have a real curiosity about these different states. Anomalous experience in particular, and one that you hear frequently, because I I've heard like people when they're talking about the philosophy of consciousness, they often say that. It's not sleep. It's not awake. It's mm-hmm. it's just the whole thing shut down. But you hear about these experiences of people who go under and I don't know if they're out of body or near death or whatever, but they have this experience of being in the other room and they hear their family talking about them or they describe to the surgeon exactly what happened. What does someone in your discipline make of that kind of thing, provided it's true? Well, there are people out there who study this actually experimentally. You can induce an out-of-body experience mm-hmm. by very, very simple artificial means. I do it in class. Mm. Uh, Thomas Metzinger, whom I mentioned earlier, was involved in some studies in which people actually have a full-body out-of-body experience. So that they perceive themselves to be floating outside their body. Very, very simple to induce. I, I can explain the setup, but uh, the one that you can use, throw a party at home, a small party, get a rubber hand mm-hmm. you can put a rubber hand on the table put your hand beneath the table so you don't see it okay and uh have someone touch like get a little paintbrush and have them stroke the rubber hand at the mm-hmm. same time someone below the table strokes synchronously very important strokes your real hand after about 30 seconds or maybe a couple minutes of this you'll feel the rubber hand to be yours and this is something to experience. Mm. I mean, I can describe, I'm describing it in words, but the experience is mind blowing because you induce it like, you know, it's not even a lab. Yeah. And so if, if that's how, how the system can be fooled, imagine what can happen when you are on some kind of medication or something wrong is going on with the brain. It's very easy for those things to happen. I had out of body experiences um, all, all the time as a, as a child. 
And so much so that I would be fearful that I wasn't going to be able to get back in my body. <laughs> and I also think that there's a, a certain disassociation that was learned from having migraines mm. to maybe remove myself from the situation yeah. or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So migraines, to my knowledge, uh, have a visual component, mm -hmm. sometimes just patterns. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know from firsthand experience, but, but sometimes it can be. Uh, places in the brain that you can activate from the outside and they do it in brain surgery sometimes mm -hmm. are known that uh, actually in the temporal lobe that if you activate them from the outside the, the patient on the table this is usually done pre-op experiences an out-of-body situation mm -hmm. and uh, in, if, if you have a focus of the migraine in the brain the temporal lobe you'll get an out-of-body experience mm -hmm. absolutely yeah Nobody, I've always, I've never talked about it very much because it's always been something that people look at you like, mm, yeah, all right, <laughs> out-of-body experiences, right? You're in a safe space with me. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> well, I feel, I feel better now. Okay, good. Um, you mentioned this earlier while we were talking, and I also read about it in your book, but you talk about kind of the end goal often with songwriting is being able to disappear, which I imagine is kind of a flow state sort mm -hmm. of thing. How do you account for that in your discipline? Because I'm sure it's something that you experience in your own when well, you're I, writing. And I, actually, I have to do precisely the opposite. So my writing process uh, is exactly the inverse of what Jeff described earlier just now. I, I write nonfiction. I mean, I, I try to describe my science. So I have to start with what I perceive as facts and I have to dress them up in a way mm -hmm. that maybe using my, my personal experiences makes them more accessible. So it's exactly the opposite, it sounds to me, from, from the process of writing. Yeah. I, don't, I don't see how that's possible because I think that it, surely if you are focused on what you're writing, mm. the Greeks had Kronos and Kairos, mm. right? Kairos is what we're talking about. Right. You know, it's a different yeah. concept, different feeling of time. Don't you have a different feeling of time when you're really in the the throes of I, working? I experience Kairos when I hike in the desert, mm -hmm. but not when I write. Oh. <laughs> when I write, when I write, I'm painfully present, and yeah. uh, but I, I I I totally get, mm -hmm. and, and of course, this is a very common and very very often studied notion of letting go of the self, and we all know the the Buddhist prescription for letting go of the self. As an experience, not as an intellectual exercise, this is something that's supposed to be good for various reasons. It, it may be good therapeutically. I actually myself never experienced it. Mm. Uh, I mean... From writing? Mm, no. <laughs> it's just that, you know, Kronos is very evenly divided time. Okay. And Kairos is time that has somehow emphasized itself as yeah. being longer or shorter or it's just the uh, time in flux okay yeah. yeah that's that's a jungian concept i mean carl jung adopted that uh, the being in in the present i think flow the concept of flow got popularized by the wrong people you know the, posi <laughs> the positive psychology movement yeah. uh, i think it should be wrestled back from them okay. because it is useful and, and you know it's good to be in the state of flow if you can do it yeah but not necessarily for reasons of pushing positive psychology. That's probably the reason I didn't describe it as that mm. in the book. Right, sure. It's just, yeah. It's that just, was my interpretation. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I'm like, I, I, think it's, I think it is the same yeah. thing, yeah. honestly. So this is what I mentioned earlier, the Metzinger's phrase, the splendor and the misery. Mm -hmm. It's the good and the bad, and you can't let go just of the bad to leave the good, because first of all, it will not be you anymore. Mm 
And it's also very, very unnatural for us to just let go of the dark side and just keep the bright. That doesn't work that way. And I don't even say unfortunately because, first of all, that's the way it is. And second, I actually am grateful, and many other people are, for having two sides to them. I think we're very, very lost without an acknowledgement and awareness of our shadow selves. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I just think it's unnatural to assume that you are all of one thing ever. Sure. You know, I tend to look at it, a shadow self more often as just a side of yourself that isn't your best, isn't mm -hmm. the part, you know, it's not really in keeping with what we're talking about here, but just yeah. this, um, I feel like if you're not allowed, you're not, wouldn't be able to mitigate your shadow self if you weren't aware of it and you didn't keep an eye on it and mm -hmm. admit that it exists. And I think our culture really, really demands that people pretend that we're, we're good. Everything's all right all the time. <laughs> there, like, there is a great, I, I, have to, I have to mention this, one of my favorite writers of all time, the late Ursula Le Guin in the, the Wizard of Earthsea series. The entire series is about this fight, this exploration and the fight over keeping both sides. This is very, very bad mage there who wants to abolish the shadows and ends up almost destroying the world. And the world is saved by some people figuring out, no, we have to keep both sides. Mm -hmm. Le Guin is also good, always good. She's always good. I picked up my kid from school on 9-11 because uh, they just were like sending everybody home. Mm -hmm. and on the way home, he was six years old, I think. And, then, uh, and I was basically kind of explaining to him what happened. He uh, sat quietly for a while. And then he said, everything in the world breaks. And I said, well, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? And he said, I think that's a very, 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 very good thing. And I said, why? And he said, because if everything didn't break, bad things would last forever. Wow. Holy shit. <laughs> anyway, I just thought that, I mean, that, that just reminded yeah, well, me of that. <laughs> you know, that reminds me of, I saw you guys, it must have been two weeks after 9-11 mm -hmm. in town hall. Does that sound right? Yeah. And it was really, it was really tense, and it was really quiet in between songs. And you were tuning your guitar, and often, I don't know if this is specific to to New York, but people are often calling things out yep. and calling song requests out. And it was very quiet. It was a charged atmosphere, and you're tuning your guitar, and someone requested an earlier Wilco song, and I said mm -hmm. misunderstood, mm -hmm. and it was quiet, and you just said, "Aren't we all?" <laughs> <laughs> anyway guys this has been great thank you so much thank you great great thanks for having me check out wilco's latest album cruel country and the deluxe versions of the yankee hotel foxtrot reissue keep an eye out for shimon's forthcoming book the consciousness revolutions published by springer nature next year for more information on his other books research and teaching please go to his website, shimon-edelman.github.io. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram. Our mix engineer is Lou Carlozo. Social media manager is Bailey Constas. And digital producer is Keenan Cush. Special thanks to Molly Fulner, Andrew Yerden, Sam Whedon, Elena Oxman, Dave O'Neill, Tim Holmes, Matt Palmieri, and Jessica Linker for their help producing today's show. If you liked today's episode, please tell a friend about us and give us a review and some stars. For more information, go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. 
Thanks for listening.